Valparaiso. This is Allison Schutte. And Willa Walsh, and you're listening to Welcome Project Radio. The Welcome Project collects first-person stories and pairs them with facilitated conversation to help participants forge stronger ties within and across communities. We vision a world in which people are curious about and actively seek to engage those who are different from themselves. We are proudly underwritten by Asana Yoga Center and Roots Market Cafe, two excellent ways to feel good during a pandemic. They're located online at asanacenter.com and rootsmarketcafe.com. Theme music is provided by WVLP's very own Paul Schreiner. Thanks, Paul. Today we bring you two stories from the Welcome Project's archive, so listen up. Our stories today are Pulled Over Probably 20 Times and White Privilege. And uh, we're thinking of today's conversation as a continuation of our conversation that we started two weeks ago when we had a, a guest with us, Larry Boss. And we had focused a lot in that episode on um, bias incidents in Northwest Indiana, specifically racially motivated bias incidents. So we heard a lot from uh, Larry about uh, the reality of those incidents here in Valparaiso and um, how they have been going up. And, and actually, I think he, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Will, I, I believe he said that like the, in, the intensity, like so the most egregious ones were dropping, but then like the, um, what we might call microaggressions has actually been increasing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so we got a chance to think a, a little bit about that in the context of our storyteller last time, who was a uh, graduate from Valpo. And when we interviewed her, she, talk, she was talking about an experience of walking to Target with her boyfriend who was black, and um, they were verbally harassed and potentially uh, there, was a, there was intention to physically intimidate as well. Um, so we're going to start today with a story, again, of a student um, at Valpo um, that we didn't get to play last time. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to play uh, the first story here, and we're going to talk about uh, the storyteller's experience. And this storyteller talks about his experience of being pulled over by Valpo police in his freshman year at Valparaiso University. When uh, the police pulled me over, my freshman year uh, officer, and it was on campus, and um, I was on my way to the gym uh, to play ball. It was probably like eight o'clock at night, and um, I didn't. Uh, I didn't have my ID on me. I had left it in in my room, um, and you know, he, first he didn't think I went to the university, and like he didn't really have a reason for pulling me over. He just, um, you know, looked around the car, and then eventually tried to find something. I think he said like there was a um, exposed light underneath my car or something like that. Some. BS like didn't make sense and um, but yeah he started talking to me he was like you know um, do, you, do you go here it doesn't look like you go here blah 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 and he said you know he was asking about my vehicle and like um, you know how I got such a nice car you know what I mean and surprised about it in a lot of ways it really just bothered me and uh, didn't give me a ticket or anything and never really you know gave me a concrete reason why I was pulled over getting pulled over by the police and you know them telling me how nice of a car I had I, the reason why I bought such a nice car, even um, I had worked really hard throughout high school, um, and, and I got a car because I needed something to get around. Trans- public transportation isn't reliable. But then there are certain things like that you take pride of, like uh, from Hispanic's point of view, you take pride in like the vehicle that you drive for. The African American point of view, you take pride in the clothes that you wear. So. Um, when people question, you know, the priorities that people have and why you buy certain things, I, that's something that people didn't understand. So when the cop pulled me over, he's like, you know, why do you have such a nice car? Blah, blah, blah. If you're from here and from here, I'm like, you know, maybe you don't understand, you know, this is part of just how I value, like, you know, success and how I value different things. So it was interesting because my freshman year, I got pulled over probably over 20 times my freshman year. It never got a ticket for anything. I just kept getting pulled over within the city of Valparaiso and also on campus as well. So that was a different experience. It stopped happening after I started working in the marketing department and I started, uh, you know, shaking people's hands and some people started to get to know me and know who I was, know my background, uh, know my success and, you know, my performance things and, um, and found out that I wasn't just, you know, I guess their perception of what a, a mixed kid from the south side of Chicago is. Um, after that, then people started being really nice to me. I can go shake the police chief's hand here and they know me and, you know, um, 
anything I need, I can call them right away and they'll help me out. But that's when it started to happen, is when I started to um, show ways, I guess, that I can help them and show ways that I'm, and show them that I'm not, you know, um, I don't know, whatever they want to perceive me as. I'm not mad about it because I know it's a part of life and I know that um, there's certain obstacles and there are certain faces that you have to put on and certain roles that you have to play. And there are certain things that you have to do um, that may not make sense and not be, you know, um, not even be right, but in order to progress, you have to do it. Um, I know that, and I learned that at a very early age. Um, so it doesn't really bother me as much. I think I've become really desensitized to it uh, over the years. Okay, so I'm wondering, I guess first, maybe like, if you've ever gotten pulled over, Allison, and like, <laughs> is this is this similar to like your experience of that, or like what you would imagine like that interaction between like the cop and like you getting pulled over? Fair. <laughs> um, okay, so I have been pulled over before. Like, I think the one that I remember first is I was a new, fresh driver. I must have been like seventeen. And I was, this is my hometown of Decatur, Illinois. I was driving, I don't even know why I was driving out by our airport. Um, and I was going too fast and I got pulled over. I did not get a ticket. Um, the police officer was very polite and asked me, as, as far as my memory recalls, uh, why I was going so fast. And I think I just probably could hardly talk. I probably came across as a, like a, inexperienced white girl who was like about to cry or something like that so I'm assuming I would have fit a kind of type um, mm. that maybe triggered a little bit of compassion in that officer so I did not get a ticket that time um, more recently I guess it's it's actually 10 years ago now but uh, this was in Valpo and I was going through a really difficult um, time in my life and I was driving up Calumet and I just was, I think I was crying <laughs> while I was driving. And it was the, since it's Calumet, it was like a 35 mile an hour zone. So I think I maybe was going 45, like just pushing over that 10 miles over kind of thing. And uh, I got pulled over. And of course, I, I don't know about you, but Anytime I see the red lights flashing behind me, my heart just starts pounding so hard. And I, I don't know why. I guess just like I'm in trouble. Mm. Um, and that officer asked me, you know, what was going on. And so I did, I, I, without even thinking, I started talking about my personal life, like what I was going through. And it had to do with a, a divorce. And so he actually said to me, like, oh, I know what that's like. I've just been through that, too. And so he also gave me a, um, a warning and asked me to make sure that, you know, like I was okay before I started driving again. So those are the experiences I remember. Mm -hmm. I, what about you? <laughs> Willow, put you in the hot seat. Um, yeah, no, I've only been pulled over once um, and I deserved it. I was going like 30 over. It was on Route 66, so it's like we were the only ones there. But I was going like 95 or something crazy. Um, but yeah, so he pulled me over, and it, yeah, my heart like sank too. And I remember like holding my eyes open as long as I could, so I'd start like welling up in tears. That way, I could like I was gonna try to play it off a little bit. Um, and yeah, and like I just like threw on like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Like I didn't know we were just looking at the mountains. And yeah, and like he, he was like, yep, just just be sure not to do. Well, like the first thing he said is just like, do you know why I pulled you over yeah. today? Like that's like in my experience, like that's kind that's of always, always how it I've starts, yeah. right? It's just like, why do you think this is happening? Or did you know how fast you were going? And so, yeah, so I mean, it was over really quick and he gave me a warning, <laughs> which I did not deserve. But yeah, but that's the only time it's happened for me. And I was just so struck by like that experience for me and like even like kind of knowing that it's like okay if I cry a little bit or like huh. do something I can seem more sympathetic and it like it paid off but like you know it's just like 
it's so weird to me that it's just like this is kind of what I'd expect like my experience is like what I'd expect when you get pulled over and so like listening to this storyteller talk about like when the cop comes up and he's like he's not even sure like why he's getting pulled over it's like I knew I was going 30 miles over so it's just like to just like be pulled over for no reason what it seems like and then it's just like the officer didn't even like lead in with like do you know why I pulled you over today it was like some weird questions about like why do you have such a nice car? Like, doesn't look like you go here. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And so it's just like that, I'd be so freaked out by that situation. And that's not something that I would ever anticipate like ever happening to me as like a white person in Valparaiso. Well, I mean, you were a student at the university and I was a student at the university um, back in the early 90s. And now I've been teaching there for over 15 years and I have never gotten pulled over on campus. Oh yeah, and I drive like a monster, yeah. (laughs) I do not drive like a monster, so. Um, <laughs> but it is like very strange that for this storyteller, I, I think he he does go on to talk about in the city as well getting pulled over. But I think that's an additional kind of like, why would you be pulled over on campus? Um, mm. So what is the reason that the officer actually gives? Oh, he was saying that there's like always oh, looking around like, the car. Yeah, he was like there's an exposed light underneath his car yeah. or some BS like that. And like, yeah, that doesn't make sense to me either. It's it's kind of weird because I, I went to like the junior police academy when I was in high school. Okay. Because I wanted to be the chief of police or the LAPD way back when. And <laughs> And they said, like, during that experience, like, one of the officers who was, like, kind of talking to us a lot was saying that it's just, like, if they wanted to pull somebody over on the road, they could do it almost, you know, 95% of the time because they can almost always find a reason to pull you over. Mm. And that's, like, that is, like, a sentence that is, like, stuck in my brain for so long because you think, like, okay, if I go more than seven over or if I go across the yellow line or if I do, like, X, Y, or Z, then I'll get pulled over. But it's such a weird thing to hear, like there's like a justification that it's like, I can kind of pull you over at any time, which I don't think was meant to be menacing because we were a group of like white students, but it is menacing when it's just, you know, you think of it in the context of this student when it's like, if that's the mentality, you know, that he can get kind of pulled over for anything. And it just, it feels like that, right? Because he's giving him a reason, like some light or something that's happening with his car just to, just to like talk to him and figure something out. That's what I don't get. Like, why are they just like pulling him over? Yeah, I mean, the implication definitely seems to be that there's a certain belief about what type of student goes to the university, Mm. and, like, this student didn't fit that profile. And, I mean, there is a certain type of student that goes to Valparaiso University that's been changing. And I I know that this interview is probably about 10 years old, so um, it would have happened at a time when there was even less diversity in our student body than we have now but even with the diversity we have now it's still a predominantly white campus and I don't know that our students of color are I I guess I'm not sure how they would talk about their relationship with the UPD right now um but I do think that it would because it's all it's not also it's it's also only it's not only that he um is a person of color, it's the car mm-hmm. as well. Why do you have such a nice car? It doesn't look like you go here. And so that makes me think that there's another profile that might be operating in the officer's mind that makes them stop the storyteller in order to find out if they fit that profile or not. And then this student didn't have their ID on them. They're just going to play basketball mm-hmm. at the gym. So, um, yeah, and I, I um, how did you understand for this student the way that that experience began to change? I know this is jumping ahead a little bit in this story, but yeah, well, he said like it stopped when he started working in the marketing department, and he said he started shaking people's hands. And so it's like he he got to know more people. He said he even got to know like the chief of police. And so to the degree that he was able to just by knowing people and talking to them more, he was able to change others perception of what he is. And so I think like by actually meeting these people, he was able to sort of like break those profiles that people were putting him into. And so I think that's when ultimately he stopped getting pulled over so much. But 
I also wonder, like, he was talking about, like, these certain roles that you have to play. Like, he's like, a certain face that you have to put on or roles that you have to play. And it doesn't make sense, but but you have to do it to get over these obstacles. And I was wondering, like, do you think it's, like, the shaking hands he's talking about or, like, something else? Yeah, I mean, one of the thoughts that came to my head is that... Um, the di- uh, one experience that's often different between people of color and white people is that people of color are seen as a category or a group and white people are seen as individuals. Mm-hmm. You know, so if if I get a job, um, people will congratulate me for being, you know, smart or well qualified. They won't say, oh, it's because you're white, you mm-hmm. know, like you're a credit to your race. Mm-hmm. So I think that some of the shaking hands thing is he becomes an individual to the people that he's meeting that know him. Mm-hmm. Now, I would imagine there would be still people that might still see him as a like a like a number or something like that, as opposed to a person. But that's what I think for those individuals that he was shaking their hands so that when they encounter him again, it's like he's not a, a mixed kid from the South Side. He's um, you know, this particular student that they know because he's come to do work with marketing and like videotaped the VUPD for some, you know, social media clip or something like that. So like he becomes, yeah, he becomes individualized. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we were recently in, in my creative nonfiction class reading an essayist, Eula Biss, who was talking about, um, it was actually an essay that was uh shortly after Katrina, so it's also pretty old now, but talking about the way the media covered the uh, looting, the supposed looting that was happening in Katrina as the floodwaters started subsiding. And then she was contrasting that with, she lived in Iowa City at the time, and there was a tornado that ripped through the town that same summer or fall. And there was looting that was done by like the white university students because like storefronts had been ripped open so they were like all going in and taking out all the booze and stuff like that and like nobody was calling that looting and she mentions in that essay how we approach experiences with stories already in our minds Mm -hmm. and then we see those stories enacted and so we're never really noticing the actual facts on the ground we're not encountering them in some kind of like even playing field Mm. so I think that's also operating here like that again there's a story about who belongs as a student Um, and if our if we have students of color that belong on campus they're not going to have nice cars Um, and so if you have somebody that doesn't fit the story then they have to fit this other story we might have. I don't know, like, were they thinking he was a drug dealer or something like that? Yeah, or, they were, like, stole the car like, or something? what would be the problem yeah. of a, a random person being on campus? I yeah. mean, so, so I think the handshaking also gets in the way of, uh, like, interrupts that story line mm. that's running. But, like, does that do any good for anybody out, anybody in addition to this individual storyteller? <laughs> Like, does it help our students of color on campus more broadly? That's that's a really good question. I would say, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I wonder if it starts to complicate, like, these profiles that are put on to students. There's not only this student. I don't know if that puts something in the officer's mind that, like, okay, this guy, I've met him. He's great. He's fine. Am I going to apply that to a different person that I meet? I don't know. But I think what's interesting here is that it's, like, especially with like the media aspect you point out of like, you know, whether it's framed as looting or not, depending on what skin color you are, like there's this sort of like implicit shaping that happens to us. And so I think this is the type of like racism that's that's harder to kind of isolate because when we think about racism, we like to, you know, it's it's easier to think, you know, I, I hate this person because of their skin color they are a race you know it's just like that's easier to define and it becomes harder to associate racism i think especially with white people because they they don't want to see themselves as this like well i hate this person and that's why i'm doing this action because i don't think it's as explicit as that i think it's more like i'm hearing these stories in the media about looting in this black community and that for me and many other things stories from my family stories from my neighborhood growing up in valpo 
being next to Gary, hearing stories about Gary, you know, that's all of that is shaping the way that you understand the black community. And so when you take that to your job, you're not necessarily thinking, you know, this person in the car, like, I hate them, I'm going to pull them over 20 times. I don't even think it's that exposed. It's just that there are certain lights going off in my head that are challenging some of these things that I understand. You know, if I saw, you know, a white kid in like a BMW on campus, would I ever pull him over? Yeah. No, because that doesn't complicate anything for yeah. me. But these stories that I'm hearing, this complicates this student being in this nice car and I need to go check out because something must be wrong based on my previous experiences. And so I think this is where it becomes really important to sort of understand, like, I guess, implicit bias, sort of like we were talking about last week, but we didn't really talk about implicit bias, but just bias in general, of, like, it's really important not just to see the explicit forms of racism of, like, I hate this person or this race is better than this, but it's also necessary to understand these, like, implicit forms of it and, like, what how do we get to that point of like this kid getting pulled over 20 times for literally not doing anything like something's happening and so I think it becomes I don't know it's like you get really defensive if somebody calls you racist because you think it must be that explicit yeah but it's really not it 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 composes like a larger subgroup of just things that might not even be your fault because this is how you were raised and so I think I don't know for me this story just says I honestly I like I I don't know all the officers at Valpo PD, but it's like, I don't think it's explicit, but I think there is something there that's happening because 20 times is just ridiculous, especially somebody who's always lived in Valpo and drives like a monster and doesn't get pulled over. So something is happening here. Uh, This is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio, and I'm Allison Schutte and Willow Walsh, and we're talking today uh, about a story from the Welcome Project um, which is the story of a, a student now graduated who um, tells us how he's been pulled over probably more than 20 times in his first year as a student at Valparaiso University. And some of that happened on campus, some of it happened in the city. He says he never got a ticket for anything. Um, I wonder, can we unpack a little bit like the reason about why the car might be on the like in this story that white people get um about people of color and like who gets to have a nice car I I mean Mm -hmm. it, it seems to me like there's some again implication that if you're a person of color you can't have wealth mm-hmm. <laughs> and maybe the student didn't have wealth but they chose to when they saved money um put it towards a car, mm-hmm. a nice car. Mm-hmm. And how did you understand what he, the storyteller, was telling us about his choices, uh, priorities, and values? Yeah, so he's talking about, like, because of his Hispanic and African-American heritage, it's just, like, you take pride in, he said, from the Hispanic's point of view, you take pride in the vehicle that you drive. From the African-American point of view, you take pride in the clothes that you wear. And he said, you know, so when people, and I'm assuming he's talking about the officers here, so when people question the priorities that you have when you buy certain things, it's it just becomes confusing. And so I think that's where the confusion lies, right? Because in this white officer's experience, like an African-American student in a nice car doesn't fit this profile that he understands. But for the student, it makes total sense because he's like, based on my culture, you know, this is part of what I value and these are part of my priorities and this is why I bought what I bought. But because the white officer doesn't necessarily have that same experience, it's there, there's, you know, there's like crossing, you know, you don't really understand uh, the priorities across both. And also I'm assuming it's a white officer. I guess we didn't say that, that for sure. True. But... <laughs> that is true. And we technically don't know um, whether that's the case or not. Um, yeah, I think it's interesting because it, it does feel apparent, although uh, the storyteller talks about you know, a car is necessary because public transportation yeah. in Chicago isn't reliable. So there is this very functional quality to having a car as well. But the niceness, the storyteller tells us, um, has to do with these are things that va- my, that are valued in my community. So it's it's a way for him to have status, and um, then to have that like upended and flipped over because you've gone from the south side of Chicago to Valparaiso University in Valparaiso, Indiana. And suddenly your status, it's It's just weird. I don't even know what that would be like to experience that. That's something that gives me status. Like, 
you know, getting an MFA and being a professor who got tenure at Valparaiso University that gives me status here. Like, where would I go that that suddenly would somebody would have to question who I was or why I had a right to be there because of that status? Like, mm-hmm. I can't. I mean, I guess that's white privilege. I can't even like, <laughs> yeah. I can't even like imagine like what would the scenario be where that would be the case? I mean, I can imagine where I would be in a situation that those things wouldn't help me, you know, like in the middle of nowhere with my car broken down, like those status things are not going to help me fix my car. Um, so, you know, I get that, but I, I don't know. It's, I feel like that must be so disorienting, but how does, how did you hear him react to that because he said he's not mad about it yeah he said he's he's become really desensitized to it over the years and when he talks about that he's he's talking about you know the certain roles and the certain faces that you have to put on and 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 it sounds like he's talking beyond you know being in the marketing department or beyond being pulled over over 20 times you know it's it's like i I don't know i thought of code switching when i thought of this part yeah, yeah like this sort of like you know, there are just certain things you have to do in front of people who do have this perception of you, and that's one obstacle that you kind of have to overcome. And so it sounds like he's so used to kind of like having to put on like that face or that role that he's just become desensitized to it. And it's not necessarily just limited to, you know, shaking hands in the marketing department. It, it kind of goes beyond that. I don't know. That was really, I really hated to hear that. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, I admire somebody who doesn't feel that doesn't have to live in anger because yeah. I feel like that would be very diff- difficult for the individual and yet at the same time I feel like there's something wrong like you should get to be angry about that but he does mention that um it's in order to progress so he has a sense of like if I modify my expectations and my behavior it's for a greater good for myself. So mm-hmm. I think that is a way that it can continue to motivate him, which I see motivation as a more positive thing than uh, a just kind of like getting by to make sure that uh, nobody notices me, which would be a, a more demoralizing mm-hmm. situation to have to live in. So it feels like he still has a sense of his agency. Um, but the fact that he you know, labels it desensitization um, that is a little bit uh, debilitating. Yeah. Not debilitating as a listener, but it, yeah, it feels frustrating. Mm-hmm. Like as somebody who's listening to his story, I wonder too. Like this idea, like being desensitized to it. It just it sounds like it's so prevalent, and it makes me think of like when we've played this story in front of like a primarily black audience and a primarily white audience and like the different reactions that we've gotten to this story. Like, you know, I think about when you play this in front of a black audience, it's, you know, it's like the the student saying, you know, I've been pulled over probably over 20 times in Valpo. It's just like, nobody questions that number of like 20 times or it's like, yeah, well, of course that happens here in Valpo. But when you play it in front of a white audience in Valpo, oh my gosh, do people get so hung up on like the over 20 times part of it and like how people like, how like it doesn't help his case that he's like hyperbolizing it and that he shouldn't exaggerate it so much because it just sounds like he's lying. And it's just like, there's this, there's this unwillingness of like white, like audiences to sort of accept that this is like believe his story I guess like because it I guess it would be so different than their experience like your and I experience getting pulled over like it's just like it doesn't it's hard to understand that it would be so different for somebody else and so I think I don't know I think that's interesting too especially if you're listening to this and you also wonder 20 times seems like a lot that has never happened to me yeah (laughs) I think it's maybe a good time to you know tune into it a little more and, and, and lean into that discomfort that, that it that it probably does happen and that just not to you. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's also a good segue to our second story because I feel like some of what she talks about comments back on that. Um, this is WVLPLP at 103.1 FM in Valparaiso. And you're here with me, Allison Schutte and Willow Walsh today on Listen Up. We've been discussing... Um, Two, actually, we're discussing two stories by students from Valparaiso University who have now graduated. And we're about to play our second story, 
which is from a white storyteller who is talking about uh, how she came to understand what white privilege is for her. Did you want to say anything else about it before? Uh, no. This okay. one is titled White Privilege. They did this experiment in the 1960s that was with baby dolls. It had to do with like little elementary school kids, and they would have like a, a white baby doll and a black baby doll, and they would like ask the kids questions about them and stuff. It was really shocking to a lot of people how much the African American children favored the white baby dolls and thought that the black baby dolls were bad. And then they, they recreated this experiment, like, recently. They had, like, a little spectrum of, like, it was the same picture but they of a person but with different skin tones, um, ranging from really, really white to really dark. They would ask those little kids, like, okay, now can you point to which one you think is the good child? Can you point to which one you think is a liar? And it was, like, the same results. It was just, you know, really incredible. I don't know, for me, a lot of white privilege is just what you don't have to think about, what you don't have to see. And uh, that's the privilege, is not having to realize that there's a racial problem. There was an article called The Invisible Knapsack by Peggy McIntosh. It's a, it's a really short article that's like a great introduction to, to even realizing that you have privilege. And she describes it as carrying around an invisible knapsack, and so she just lists off, off the top of her head the things that she can think of, the the ways that she's privileged just like on a daily basis. You know, I can go around places and feel safe. I have the opportunity not to go through quote-unquote dangerous areas. I have the, the option to just not see so much stuff and going into like a job interview. I never have to worry that they are going to have prejudice against me. I guess the biggest thing is just realize how little you know and like how limited your own experience is if you have white privilege because you see things through this very tunnel vision because society has set it up to where you don't have to see so much. So I think the most important thing is to realize, A, you're never going to have those experiences that so many other people have because you'll never have to, you never had to, and um, people just won't treat you the same way. So I guess the most important thing is to realize that you have to listen to people and not just listen to what they're saying but believe what they're saying Um, because people will just say, no, that couldn't happen. You know, the cops aren't racist anymore. People don't do that anymore. We, You know, everything got solved with civil rights, so we don't have to work on it. And you're just an angry minority person if you're saying that, because obviously that kind of thing doesn't happen, because I don't see it happen. I don't know people who I would have to believe, people I'm related to, or I don't know people who I would have to take seriously that have said things like that. So I don't have to believe you, so I don't have to deal with, you know, how I'm how I'm complicit in this system and how I'm fine when the cops pull me over because I'm a white female. Usually if the cop's male, you know, not going to see me as threatening in the least bit. So I'm like the least likely demographic to get a ticket. And I've only been pulled over twice ever and I've only, and I've never gotten a ticket. And so it's like, you know, I benefit from that. I wonder if we could start with the study before we get down to privilege itself. Um, like, how do you hear her describing what those studies are about? Yeah, so it sounds like, okay, so there's white kids and African-American kids, and they're shown in the 1960s, this would be a white baby doll and a black baby doll, and they were asked uh, which one is the good child and which one, you know, is the liar. I guess that was later on. But um, recently, which I'd assume is maybe like 2010-ish, they repeated the study, um, and they showed children the pictures of, uh, like, really light-skinned children to really dark-skinned children, and it had the same results as it did in the 1960s, yeah, which would be that... that's daunting. Yeah. That, <laughs> 50 years. <laughs> but even, like, the white children and the African-American children identified the white children as being, like, the quote-unquote good children. And that's... I don't know. I think for me here, that just highlighted that... I mean, because these experiments are done with children, right? Yeah. So it's just like you're kind of just gauging how, like, internalized this is and, like, what people, you know, what the kids are kind of getting from their environment. And so it's really, I don't know, it really sucks to hear that it's like there could be, like, a 50-year difference between these two studies and the results are the same. And, yeah, I don't know what to make of that. I mean, I think, like, actually, I think that would be surprising to, like, white people, I guess, because you'd think, like, again, like she mentioned, like, the civil rights movement and there, things happen because if you have privilege, you're not necessarily seeing these things every day, so it's easy to feel like, oh, they've gone away. And so to see this study repeated recently and to have the same results, I think is, 
yeah, it's surprising because you'd, you'd think that there would be change there, but obviously not. I it would be surprising to people of color too, you know, like that it's the, the sort of the story that we have culturally about who's good and who's bad and how that relates to race is being absorbed so deeply still by, by kids of color as well. Um, I would think that would be really scary too. And, and it, it does speak to the power of these stories and how nobody's, you know, really immune to absorbing what's out there in the culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and I shouldn't just say what's out there in the culture because I think it's it's reinforced kind of continually. So it there is actually something about it that's pernicious, I think, not just neutral. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and that is the fact that it's 50 years later. Um, and the fact, I think, that, that it looks like that second study was trying to get at colorism as well as racism. So, like, the darker the skin tone, like, somehow that mm-hmm. makes you even, like, more prone to bad behavior, like lying or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, yeah. It sounded like it really upset the storyteller, too. Um the tone of her voice seemed a little shaky yeah. there when she was thinking about that. Yeah. Do you make anything of that? Yeah, I don't know. I think, I mean, it sounds, I mean, it sounds like she's surprised too, right? Like, it's just <laughs> this 50-year difference and that it's it's still kind of, um, it's still happening. But I think also it's just, I don't know, the way she's saying it too is, I don't know. It's like, I feel like in like sociology classes, like things that I sort of like internalized, they were things that when I heard them, I was like, wow. <laughs> and so the fact that she's repeating this, it feels like this is maybe not the first time she's, she's, you know, pointed this out. And so it's just kind of this, I don't know, I guess it's this sort of evidence that just mm-hmm. because you think it's gone away or just because you don't see it doesn't mean that it's not there. So this is like, you know, the evidence that she has to say, yeah. yes, this actually is still here, despite whether you think it's here or not. Yeah. And despite whether you would want it to be yeah. there, I, I feel like, I mean, I don't know for this storyteller exactly why she was shaken by it, but um, if you would like society not to be racist, <laughs> then it feels like if you get evidence for it, especially in kids, right? So it's starting so young, then that just makes the the problem or the the consistency or the persistence of racism feel like all the more hard to overcome and so it it can be like kind of a gut dropping feeling of like wow are we ever going to really figure out how to change this narrative and this um this system that continues to like look at race in terms of a hierarchy of good and bad strong and weak um -hmm. yeah it does seem like for her learning about privilege as a white person became something that she appreciated Mm -hmm. so if the study like really shook her up like that education she got in what white privilege is became at least a tool a tool for her Um, I wanted to talk a little bit before we totally dive into white privilege with just the term privilege. And apart from, like, I think you and I have heard the term together so often, Mm -hmm. white privilege, that um, it might be hard to do this. But, like, do you have associations with just the term privilege? Like, Um, what comes to mind when you think of that word? Yeah, I also, I guess I also think about, like, like wealth in in that term. So it's just, like... You know, you're privileged if you don't have to carry around a lot of student debt, or you're privileged if your parents went to a fancy schmancy college, and maybe you'll get into that college too, or if your parents can, I don't know, get you a car when you're in high school, or you at least have some sort of support. I think privilege has a lot to do with maybe uh, the support or the hardships you don't have to face. Yeah, I think that there's something of like, you've got it good, you know, like you're set. Um, you're kind of out of harm's reach in a certain sort of way. Like you've got a a great deal of protection around you. Um, And I think one of the reasons I was curious about thinking just through our associations with that is I know there's, there are white people who just have a lot of trouble with this idea that there's white privilege out there. 
And some of that I think has to do with the fact that it's, it can be hard to see if the norms of culture are white norms um, that benefit and advantage white people. Um, but I also think it's that people as individuals don't often feel like so protected. And so I think there's a dissonance that can happen between learning that your skin color in our society has protected you in some kind of fashion. Um, so I, I just wanted to have that in the back of our minds as something that can be really hard to absorb. And then what do you, what did you make of um, like how the storyteller actually helps us understand what white privilege is? Like which, which things stood out to you? Yeah, well on the onset there, she talks about like white privilege is what you don't think about and what you don't have to see. And the privilege of it is not realizing that there's a problem, which I think that makes white privilege really hard, right? Yeah. Because I typically only learn about my white privilege as I talk to people whose experiences are different from my own. So I learn it when I listen to the story pulled over probably 20 times because it's like, whoa, I didn't even think that that was possible that that could happen because that's so outside of my experience. Yeah. I didn't even think that was happening. And so I think to one degree, it's that it's hard to even access, like, the understanding, like as a white person, like where where you just have privilege and where you don't. But also another thing that I want to point out too is that you brought in a little background, which I love. And I actually I saw a TikTok recently that okay. that put it so well that I really liked it. And and she was talking about she said white privilege doesn't mean that you haven't had it hard. White privilege doesn't mean that you don't have low income. It just means that those things haven't happened to you because of the color of your skin. Mm -hmm. And I really like that because I think that's a lot of like the, the pushback I hear with white privilege is that it's like, well, I'm not privileged. I don't, you know, I'm not driving a BMW everywhere or, you know, I lost my job. You know, it's like it, it doesn't mean that things aren't hard, but it just means that it's not because of your skin color that, that they have been made to be hard. So I don't know. So that, that was something that stood out to me, which I think, I don't know, for this, for her definition of it, to me, it just, it makes a lot of sense when it's, you know, it's it's about not being able to, to see it. And yeah. I think that's what makes it so daunting. <laughs> Have you ever read Macintosh's Unpacking the White Knapsack? I don't think so. I don't think the so. the Invisible Knapsack, I guess is what she calls it here. It's very easy to find online. So any of anybody that's listening, if you haven't, read it before it's worth just googling and checking out when I first read it um the one that still stands out to me today is I can purchase band-aids that match my skin tone <laughs> and I thought I maybe it's because I'm a writer and that's such a concrete image that it can be this bigger metaphor like I had never thought about the fact that band-aids are flesh-toned in the first place because they just happen to more or less match my skin tone and some people might think well that's not a big deal who cares if it matches your skin tone or not but I still think there's like this kind of level of I don't know like dignity in the fact that if you have scraped yourself and you don't want to draw attention to the fact a band-aid that matches your skin tone will help you camouflage that in mm -hmm. a way that lets you go about your life and people don't bother you mm -hmm. um, and I just I think that that was one of those very small moments that I was just like, oh, okay. Like I've never even had to consider yeah. that before. And that's, a, that's again, that's a very small thing that like doesn't have quite the same weight as getting pulled over by the, by the cops um, or other things that might have to do with jobs, how you feel when you go shopping, if somebody's watching you mm -hmm. or not watching you. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, that's like the same thing that it's like these these moments of like like the flesh colored bandaid. It's just like you don't it's like you're never put into a situation and our storyteller says like you because society sets it up in a way that you don't have to be put in that situation that you're ever really like contemplating things like that until it's called out. And so I think one of the the, the main aspects of like understanding white privilege is you know, it's like, you can deny it all you want, but I think it's like, you should at least read all the ways that you have it and seek out these sort of stories because, I mean, it's just, you're bet to find something that you've never heard before. Like, I, I was talking to um, 
one of my friends a few years back and she was talking about how like when she goes into she's talking about jc penny specifically and like how she like has to like put her hood down if she's wearing a sweatshirt or something otherwise like people will kind of look at her mm-hmm. or like you know if she's shopping for something like she's had like white uh workers at jc penny like kind of like follow her from a distance and like watch her and like as if she's gonna like steal something or something i don't know but it's just like this sort of like it's like i would never think of that you know it's like i could i could walk into a gas station with a ski mask on and it's like nobody's probably gonna bat their eyes at me because i'm a little white girl so but you know it's all these things that it's just like it doesn't occur to you until you hear an experience that's so vastly different from your own and that's what makes it so hard to actualize, I think. Yeah. This is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio with Allison Schutte and Willow Walsh. And we're talking today about two stories from the Welcome Project archive. The first one we listened to during the first half of the show was a quote unquote mixed kid from mixed race kid from the south side of Chicago who had experienced being pulled over. 20 times or more during his first year as a student at Valparaiso. And then the second half hour, we're listening to a white student talk about her understanding of white privilege um, and how she came to understand like what that means. Um, I think you started to talk about this already, Willow, but do you have a sense of what this storyteller would want white people to do? Like how she wants them to engage or yeah so she says the most important thing to realize is that you have to listen to people and not just listen to what they're saying but believe what Mm. they're saying and i think she points out you know something that i don't know is kind of essential to white privilege because if you're talking to a bunch of you know white people are you really going to get to the bottom of like where your privilege lies because i mean also i think of this too like if you're kind of in an echo chamber and if you're, you're doubting the existence of white privilege, but are you only ever talking to other white people about the existence of white privilege? Of course, you're not going to find it that way. But so I think she points out the fact that you really do. You need to seek experiences outside of your own. You need to, you know, go on the Welcome Project website and, and, and listen to some stories or talk to friends and neighbors, you know, just... When, when you're, you know, scrolling through Twitter and you see like a New York Times article or something, you know, just like, just seek stuff out, listen to stuff, you know, turn on NPR for 15 minutes and like hear something that's totally outside of your experience, just so you can open yourself up to what things are out there. Because if you're only limiting yourself to what you're experiencing, if you only look at a Band-Aid every day and never think about the color of the Band-Aid or what privilege you get from that, you know, however small, it's just you're never going to make those connections outside of it. And so it's important here, I guess, to when she says to listen to people and believe what they're saying. So, yeah. Yeah. And she seems to understand um, that a lot of white people do not have friends of color in their social circles who um she says people i'm related to or people who i have to take seriously that have said things like that so if we have friends who if as a white person i have black friends or latinx friends um or asian american friends uh i'm just thinking recently now in the light of um the atlanta murders uh how you know, we're thinking again about anti-Asian sentiment. Um, like if you don't have those people that you're relating to and so you haven't heard them talk about it, it won't seem like something that you have to believe because um, mm-hmm. you're just not even, if they're not your experiences, but there's somebody you care about and they have the experiences, that's a bridge, that can be a bridge for you to your own understanding. Mm-hmm. Um there's, I, I, I am curious, I guess, about, this goes beyond our storyteller here. Um, there's a story recently in the New York Times about Smith College, and there was a, a black student there who was asked, who was sitting alone in a cafeteria and was asked by a custodian and a, and a campus police why she was there. And the situation as it has unfolded, 
she experienced that very much in terms of this, like, it's dangerous to eat while black, it's dangerous to drive while black, and had put that out on social media as her experience, her sense of that experience. And then the um, white administration, specifically the president of Smith College, had responded to it, believing her. The New York Times was reporting on how, in talking to the facilities management people and the campus police at the moment that that cafeteria had been closed to everybody and so this facilities management staff had been told if you know if you see anybody here like uh, get somebody from campus police just to come with you to find out what's going on and so from their perspective it had nothing to do with her race Mm -hmm. at all it was just that there was somebody anybody that was in that cafeteria and the New York Times story is about how this is kind of blown up for the school in terms of tensions between uh, those people who are hearing and believing the black student and those people who are hearing and believing the facilities management people and it's become a a white privilege class privilege kind Mm -hmm. of thing so um I mean, I don't even know how to start really unpacking that yet. I, I'm, I'm wondering about this this um, imperative she gives us to listen and um, and what it means to listen and to listen well and who do you listen to and how many people do you listen to mm-hmm. and how can you get people who aren't hearing each other to listen to each other. Um, I have in my... Uh, signature for my emails uh, a quote by Anna Devere Smith who's a playwright, actor, activist uh, she says one kind of intervention is the intervention of listening and for her when she goes into a project she's trying to listen to everyone even people whose positions she wouldn't necessarily agree with or um, want to condone in any sense but for her it's always about how am I going to really hear what this person is saying or experiencing about their their life the authority of their experience which for me has always been a model or an ethic for us on the welcome project and um, so this story from Smith College has really left me uh, like I don't know if the word is confused exactly but just really maybe a little bit like this storyteller upon hearing the study that was reproduced 50 years mm-hmm. later and we're you know kind of creating the same results just um how do we listen and validate people in their experiences especially when those experiences contradict each other in a moment of conflict mm-hmm. <sighs> That's a big question. <laughs> I don't even know if it's like one we can take on yeah. in this show. Yeah, but I, I like that idea because, okay, so what I'm hearing, though, is that the cafeteria was closed. Is that the story that they're telling or is that like the actual I mean, as truth? far as we know, according to the New York Times, that was like that was the actual case. That was the actual case. thing. Okay, so then with that, I think like I think there are two truths happening there. Yeah. And so I think maybe that's where we can run into some of the muck which is like which one is the truth when based on both of their experiences the campus PD and the facilities folks approaching the student and also the student experiencing that moment I mean there's two different truths happening right so for the facilities management folks are saying hey you know this is closed you gotta go you know for the black student that's (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that feels like oh this is this is an all too familiar feeling yes, like yes. our previous storyteller was talking about all these obstacles all these roles you have yes. to play and that he's become desensitized to it over the years and that it's just like it still feels like you know I've felt this before or you know it doesn't necessarily have to be this but it feels that way and I think a lot of like for me that happens a lot too with like I mean, I can think of it something as small as like, you know, I used to have like Democratic bumper stickers on my car and people used to tailgate me. And you always wonder, like, is it because they hate the person on my car? They just hate the way I drive. And I think about that, too, as like you know, being a queer person. It's just like you, you never know, like how like if a microaggression is like 
so pronounced that it is homophobic, but you're always kind of left wondering, you're like, is it because of that? And so I think there are like two truths happening there because there's still that ambiguity where that student's left to feel like, is this actually because the cafeteria is closed or is it because I'm just a student at, I don't know about Smith College, but if it's anything like Valpo University, you know, at like a primarily white institution with primarily, you know, white faculty members, is this, you know, does this mean something more than just the cafeteria is closed? And so I think that's where it becomes something to parse out a little more carefully and not necessarily like, who are we going to listen to, but how are we understanding how both people or both parties experience this situation? It kind of reminds me of our conversation about creative nonfiction that we had where, you know, you had the uh, Jocelyn Barkovicious um, having experience with her cousin and event that was then also videotaped, which then when they watched it, like, I don't know, 30, 40 some years later, they were both at the event. They both watched the same videotape at the same time. And then they both still interpreted what was happening on the, in that moment that was captured by the camera very, very differently. So, um, it is interesting, like, then what does listening mean in the sense of, in the context of people coming to uh, to having these competing truths? And do we, is listening going to be enough, or do we also have to have additional tools that we bring in that help us um, understand how to negotiate competing truths? Um, is the... And is the point like that we're supposed to somehow resolve the difference to get to a common truth? Or is there something else we could do, like just understand how deeply complicated our human experiences are that we don't have to resolve them, but maybe there's something else we ought to be doing then in light of that. So we're not gonna come to the same page here or the same version of events, but what else is there to do? then I start thinking about our other conversation about like fixing versus healing, you know, like, okay, you can't fix this mm-hmm. because we can't get these two competing truths to resolve into one beautiful, harmonious truth. And so what does it mean to heal that situation instead of trying to fix it? Um, and again, these are questions that I think we have to live into. We can't necessarily answer, but I don't know. Does that bring anything to mind? Yeah, totally. I mean, it's like, I mean, one version of events here is, you know, like how this could have turned out, you know, the black student, you know, talks about this experience of being, you know, kicked out of the cafeteria and feeling like it's because their, you know, their identity as a black person. And then having, you know, the president say, you know, own up to it, but then having, you know, Campus PD and the facilities management folks say, no, it was actually because the cafeteria was closed and ending it as, you know, oh, black student, you were wrong the cafeteria was closed, you were incorrect, this wasn't about your identity. I mean, that's one version of events, right? You're just kind of invalidating the way that student felt like being kicked out of that space. And, you know, even though, you know, in hindsight, sure, that's what happened, but that's not what it felt like in the moment. So I think there, I mean, I think listening must be the first step. I'm not sure like what we can do beyond that to sort of like I guess I like I wouldn't say a common truth because I'm not sure a common truth is possible but I I guess a deeper understanding of both sides for healing because I guess you're right like you're not going to fix it but you're if you can at least get to a common understanding like I mean I'm sure like it would feel so much better for me if I was sitting there and it's like I got kicked out of like a super Christian space or something like that and I'm like was that homophobic (laughs) and then to like and then like afterwards it'd be like no this place was closed it's like okay that makes me feel a little bit better that still sucked in the moment though so I think there is like there there is some healing that happens with listening and like a, a validation that needs to happen uh, um, on like both of these experiences, but especially for the students' experience, you know, I, like it would be a shame to say your experience didn't matter because that wasn't actually the case in hindsight. And I think that's where we can kind of lean in, like you say, and, and listen to both sides and kind of validate both experiences because I think that's where you can kind of uncover things a bit more. I think it also points out that how listening is not the same thing as just hearing and there there might need to be some facilitation mm-hmm. to like really help each other figure out how to listen. The story goes beyond what we've just talked about. If people are interested in it, they can Google it, I'm sure. But um, anyway, that's it for today. Um, 
And uh, thanks for listening. Thanks again to our sponsors, Asana Yoga Center at asanacenter.com and Roots Market Cafe at rootsmarketcafe.com. We here at Welcome Project Radio love to support our local businesses. And if you'd like to start a conversation with us or ask us any questions, you can feel free to email us at welcomeprojectradio at gmail.com. Again, that's welcomeprojectradio, all one word, at gmail.com. And if you'd like to hear more stories like the ones you heard today, you can find them on our website at welcomeproject.balbo.edu.